Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Living God, help us to hear your holy word with open hearts so that we may truly understand. An understanding that we may believe and believing that we may follow in faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Jeremiah, chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands, so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like the clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted or torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Now therefore say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, This is what the Lord says, Look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. This is the word of the Lord. The children's song was a good response to God's word to Jeremiah. Jeremiah could have just said back, okay, you're right, I got it. We're going to sing with praise. We're going to worship. We're going to serve the Lord. Our second reading this morning is the New Testament reading from 2 Corinthians Chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. But we have this treasure in clay jars, so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. This is the word of our Lord. So we read in the scriptures this morning, the death is at work in us. There is something a little macabre and daunting about reading those words to imagine The inevitable, the entropic nature of the universe ticking away inside each one of us in every cell 
in every fiber. And even though it is happening biologically in us and in all living things, we work very hard against the work that death is doing in us. Possibly more through spa treatments and health and food. Possibly we work more against the physical aspects of death than what death is doing through us. Possibly we skirt the imagery that makes us uncomfortable to engage our mortality. But in verse 12, we have this very odd phrasing that makes the passage slightly an awkward one. On one hand, you have something, death, that is at work in us, and yet, life is at work in you. The Greek phrase is very short and very simple, and it stands out. There's this us and you phrasing, and maybe it causes a little pause here. To whom is Paul speaking? If Paul meant the church in Corinth, surely he just would have said, death is at work in us, and yet life is at work in us. It seems almost as if maybe he's saying that, that life is in you, meaning Christ, speaking to Christ. Life is in you, Jesus, comparing the human and the divine. And it seems to make sense, except grammatically, the Greek is very specific. It is a plural you. An address to the listening mass. The NIV and the NRSV and the CEV translations have little help to offer us. Sometimes it's nice to be able to look at different translations and you can have some elucidation. But instead, NIV and the NRSV just say basically the same thing. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. The CEV, Contemporary English Version, says this means that death is working in us, but life is working in you. Again, it has that us and you moment. It moves from the first person dative plural, in case you wanted to know the deep grammar of what's going on, to the second person dative plural. And all of this is just an extremely grammar nerd way of saying that it is taking great care and great pain to make sure that we know that us and you are indirect objects in the sentence. Which is only a slightly less grammatical nerd way of saying that life and death are manifesting in us as recipients. Which stands to reason... It starts to make a little bit of sense because that matches with what Paul describes about our bodies as the places that are holding death. Death is, in effect, inflicting this status on our bodies and our souls, as it were, are apart from this. The souls, instead, are receiving life that is coming to us from Christ. There's a last line of this second passage that we read this morning as well. In light of what we just uncoupled, 
in terms of being the indirect object of things that are happening. We need to understand also that Paul is saying that death is inescapable for every human. As we look at the last passage from our reading. But life is working in you, in the church to whom I am revealing this. Paul is claiming that he senses and sees and knows that the life of resurrected Jesus is at work in them. An external treasure, a miracle that's taking place within a mundane vessel of clay. And hopefully that is comforting. And I'm still struck by that earlier verse. And the NIV and the NRSV say it slightly differently. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. And this is what Paul is thinking about people in general, about humans, about certainly the church in Corinth. The NRSV says, for while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake. The contemporary English version, which was a translation of the Bible that went back to the Greek and the Hebrew, sticks out the most and has maybe the the most helpful English version of this passage. It simply says, We face death every day because of Jesus. It kind of qualifies in maybe a way that's easier to understand that being part of the disciplehood of Jesus Christ is a threshold moment. Once we've crossed into it, we can never be the same. We can never go back. Because of who Jesus is, we're going to face death every day. And that matches up with what he said before about, yeah, we, we are troubled, but we're not beluggered. We're this, but not that. There is going to be death every day in some form or another. Is it true that we really face death? Yeah, I talked at the beginning as we started about the biological pieces of us that are slowly failing, whether we want to admit it or not. But do we really face death? Now Paul's writing this in the ancient world. And sure, in the ancient world, when Paul is writing this, there was the very real persecution and persecution unto death of the early Christian church. We know that from Acts 7 and Acts 12, we have stories of the Jewish authorities persecuting unto death the early Christians. And then later, as the Jewish authority waned, the Roman Empire itself persecuted Christians, killed them, martyred them. So yes, in a very real way, the early believers that were reading this in Corinth and later as they read the letters to Corinth, they were being faced with the very real possibility of their earthly death every day because of Jesus because they had crossed over that threshold moment, because they believed in who Jesus Christ was, they faced death. And in the metaphoric view, which is possible simultaneously for them and for us, we can acknowledge that not only 
is the earthly march of time winning in an unstoppable sense over our bodies, we can also realize that the cult of death is at work in us, driving us to the practices of the dead. Things like hate and fear and uncompassionate anger, that is, those are the practices of the death. In many ways, we face death every day. And we can also believe in other kinds of death, not just the works of death trying to actively undo the works of God, but we can also fear the social death because of Jesus. We can fear the political death because of Jesus. We can fear the death of a long-standing relationship. We can fear the death of financial security, the death of our good health, and the death of the old life to which we were accustomed. Maybe it is true. We face death every day. Now here at the beginning of the month, if you happen to have uh, been worshiping with us, we engaged with life. We engaged with the life that we have in Christ as we celebrated World Communion Sunday. If you were there, you remember that the communion table looked a little bit different. Partially we were trying to expand visually the table of God to encompass the whole world. But if you were looking at the different elements and different pieces that were set here on the chancel, you may have noticed that the tableware was slightly different from what we usually use. There were some clay pieces, chalice, plate. Now, every minister I've ever met always has at least one of these or a few of these or is looking to have at least one set and it's almost always made out of clay. Very rarely will I find someone that has a wooden one or something made out of metal. Now, as communion is central to our lives as Christians and disciples, the, the clay communion set seems central to the identity of the pastor. Now, the clay vessel is interesting Not only because of this verse from Corinthians and Jeremiah, but but also because of the clay itself. Clay is an interesting thing. And whether they had this deeper knowledge of what a clay vessel was really made out of back in the day, I don't know. But to us, it can mean something more. Clay is a phyllosilicate, which means that it gets its slick property from a suspension of water in finely, finely pulverized particles. If you've ever worked with clay or have lived in enough places to dig enough holes, you know that there are different kinds of clay, and they can vary wildly depending on what the clay contains. Beyond the silicates and minerals that will give it color, it also contains pulverized organics. Clay is full of varying amounts of plant and animal material that can make it smell, that can change the texture. In essence, anything made from clay is at least in part made from death. And so the clay vessel in communion becomes a 
perfect analogy for what we're talking about this morning. A vessel of death made literally from dead things, holding the stuff of real life. We face death every day. We might not all face a physical death and a very stark reality every day, which, which is why I think we can find the stories of those who do face it or who have faced it so worthy of our honor and wonder. There are those people who face death every day, people who are called into a life to protect people, like service people of every kind, peace officers, firefighters, and others. There's a firefighter named Timothy Casey who writes a blog about his experiences from week to week. And he talks about all kinds of things. As a first responder, he's had guns pointed under his chin, shotguns leveled at his guts. He writes about a chimney that fell on top of him inside a burning building that was crushing him. He talks about falling through the floor in another two, three-story building and only being saved as his air tank got caught on one of the joists until another fire person could come pull him out. He also tells a story of passing out from inhalation when his mask got knocked off by falling burning debris and waking up sitting on the back of one of the trucks, not remembering how he got there. Some people have been called into a life that faces death every day. There are also people that have had death forced upon them. We live in a time when death is knocking on a lot of doors. It seems pervasive in news and in what we read and in some of the folks that we talk to. Maybe it's good that we're talking about death. We've got hurricanes and floods confronting people out of their comfortable lives. We've got infrastructure so devastated in Puerto Rico that American citizens who live there are still being confronted with the really real fear of death through dehydration, starvation, wound complications, even this long after the actual storms have passed. People in Syria and other countries in the world are fleeing from people with guns who seek to kill them, and even as they flee seeking refuge, they are confronted with death by exposure and malnourishment and the languishing spiritual death as they wait in internment camps for their lives to start over. Through the lives of these men, women, and children, we can commiserate, we can have empathy, and we can face death every day. People here at home in our own backyard face death and have faced death for generations. Death brought to them by evil choices made in the name of God in some ways. This past week, I had the privilege of sitting and listening to the 19th Poet Laureate of the United States, Natasha Trethaway. She recited, among others, one poem entitled, Incident, 
which tells of her experience of having a cross burned out on her front lawn. I encourage you to look it up and read it in its entirety. It's very powerful. But I wanted to highlight just a few stanzas. We peered from the windows, shades drawn, at the cross trussed up like a Christmas tree, the charred grass still green. Then we darkened our rooms and lit the hurricane lamps. At the cross trussed up like a Christmas tree, a few men gathered, white as angels in their gowns. We darkened our rooms and lit hurricane lamps, the wicks trembling in their fonts of oil. We face death every day. And yet, like the cup sitting on the communion table, a thing made of death, we are filled with life. Our verses from Jeremiah and our series on Jeremiah is going to take a, a small hiatus for the next few weeks as we get ready for some special Sundays. And it's good that, that this week's verse is a nice reference point for a lot of the things that Jeremiah has been talking about and trying to talk about and trying to get the people of Judah to listen to. God invites him into a simple trip to the potter, and that quickly turns into a pretty serious message from God on the behavior of the people. That's possible, again, as we're talking about clay. If you've never been in a potter's workshop or worked with clay yourself, you might Imagine a serene place of quiet. Someone sculpts on the wheel or puts quiet pieces of earth together. That's not totally true all the time. There is a violence in this verse that would betray the rhythms of a quiet potter. But the violence in this verse... Mimics it instead. It's just as violent at, at times being in a potter's workshop. The very first thing you do with clay, when you cut off a hunk or you, you take the piece that you have, is you wedge or knead it. Okay? It's called wedging the clay, kneading the clay. And it's not like kneading bread. We have this idea, uh, grandma or great aunt in the kitchen kneading bread, a quiet, serene moment, birds are outside, the sun is shining through. That's not how clay is kneaded. You pick up the clay, and one of the very first things they teach you to do is you throw it down as hard as you possibly can on one of the clay tables, and it makes this enormous sound. And if you get a whole class full of people in there doing it, it's just this crazy, rhythmic, aggressive thing going on. And you do it over and over, and you're just trying to start working the clay and, and just get some elasticity into it. And then you start pulling up chunks and folding them in and punching them down and pushing on. It's very violent. It's rough. When you throw it onto the wheel, you have to push it down. You have to put your body over it. You have to put your weight into it to mold the lump that's in front of you. Jeremiah has what might sound to us like a very passive tone that tells us, as God is speaking, that the potter would sometimes change their mind and make it into a different shape. Well, this is actually a violent act 
If something goes wrong, usually what you do at the wheel, if you want to make a different shape, is you scrape all that clay off, and you put it over here, and you get a new piece of clay, and you start over. (laughs) That doesn't work great for the metaphor that God's trying to instill in each of us. But what happens to that clay is it gets put back into the other clay. It gets wedged again. It gets struck again. It gets pushed around again. Then it gets pushed back on the wheel. If you have another pot that is left to air dry, but then ends up being faulty. As God says in Jeremiah, the piece is shattered and broken. And in the workshop, those shattered, broken bits can be crushed and put back into the clay and re-wedged again and put back on the wheel. The potter's workshop is alive with violence. And so this warning is dire. Live right, turn from sin, beware the evil nations or else turn back into the clay pile and I will reshape you later. So in this violence we face death every day. Even in Jeremiah we see it. So we don't want to face this kind of death. We don't want to do this kind of thing. We want to obey God. We want to listen to God. We want to do something that's not evil. What is this evil, though? We might be tempted to simply assume that the evil is Babylon or even Egypt. We kind of know that's the framed time period. We're in the exile period as we read through Jeremiah. Well, you know, Babylon and Egypt, those are the bad guys in the story. And the Israelites are the good guys. So that must be who the evil nations are. But we know from reading other pieces of Jeremiah that it is actually the local Israelite government that God is talking about. In Jeremiah 52, 2, later on in the story, we read that Zedekiah and Jehoiakim were both evil and had done evil in the eyes of the Lord. And what was their odious sin that had led them to this place. As leaders, as kings of the people, they had an obligation to care for every citizen and to adhere to God's word as related to them by the prophets. And Jehoiakim refused to do that. Instead, he ignored Jeremiah completely and went to war against the Babylonians, resulting in his capture. Further ignoring God and seeking only his own glory, perhaps, the rebellion he led against Babylon led to the demise of the kingdom of Judah. And then later, his brother Zedekiah, who ruled after him, followed the same pattern with the actions that resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. This is what God counts as evil acts. You might imagine that these men were leading a rebellion against uh, an invading pagan empire. And surely they were doing the right thing. But the key is that they ignored God's warning and prophets. Regardless of what logic dictates or what seems like would be the right choice. They wanted their will, their kingship, and their name to be the most important thing. The passage is deeply serious about warning 
people against hubris, conceit, and narcissism. God says it right at the top of the verse, People of Israel, I, the Lord, have power over you. In the violence of the potter's studio, that is not an empty threat. There is death in the clay, and there is death in disobedience for our own sake. There is destruction in the remolding of failed pots. And there is Jeremiah standing in the potter's mess of dirt and sweat, knowing, yeah, we face death every day. If you look at our two Old Testament, New Testament verses, you notice there's a gap in our conversation about clay. We go from forming the clay and making it, reshaping it, straight to being filled. There's a missing crucial step. Maybe you can guess what it is. Once clay is molded and dried out, it has to be fired before it can be filled. And once it's fired, it cannot be remolded. It cannot be broken back up and put back into the lumps of clay and reshaped and re-wedged and reworked. No matter what kind of strength you put into it, fired clay cannot go backward. It can only go forward. It has crossed over that threshold moment. Paul says the clay vessel is only really as valuable as what's inside of it. Clay is plentiful. There's nothing particularly special about it except what it could contain. Water, oil, wine, treasure. The worth of any clay vessel is only in that it can hold something. Otherwise it's I don't know. The world's wisdom would say we throw it out. We don't need it. If it doesn't hold anything, if it's got a crack in it, if it's got a hole in it, we can throw it out. And yet, Paul says that we are not destroyed. We're persecuted, yes. We're struck down, yes. We're pressed in from every side, sure. But still available, still able to carry incredible treasure. How can that be? There is a Japanese practice called kintsugi. You may have heard of it. It's kind of a popularized trend. And I usually don't mention this kind of stuff in sermons. But it's a process that joins together broken pottery with gold leaf. The understanding is that the broken object, as it is repaired with the gold, the brokenness of it is seen as part of the story of the vessel. It doesn't need to be disguised or polished over or painted over the cracks. The brokenness have to be seen even as the gold heals it and makes it usable. Again, we do have dire and important instructions from God on how we can participate in life, on how we can exist in a beneficial and God-centered life before we are fired and set 
And Paul, writing after the threshold moment, the earth-shattering moment, the universe-altering events of the cross, the solidifying of the vessel, the thing that has altered us in a way that we cannot go back on, Paul writes after that moment and says, even post-firing, our vessels may come with cracks or imperfections or stressors, and it's too late to go back and be reworked on the potter's wheel. But we can be conquered in our purpose of holding the treasure of life that's poured into us. The human practice of kintsugi and the sacrament of communion tells us that we can be broken and have as a part of us the death of this world. We can face death every way and still be beautiful and able to hold the blood of Christ within us. Like the chalice sitting on the communion table, we can hold the blood of Christ that is meant to be shared with the world. We face death every day, yes. And like the cup, we are filled with life. As Paul says, death is at work in us. That is a reality that we will not escape in this life. In all the ways of spiritual and physical death that can happen. And yet Paul reminds us. He says to his church in Corinth, I see life. I see life in you. I see God's own risen, sacrificing life working in you. In all of you. 